0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to Samuel Adams Returns. Those Anti-Federalists, they did, they got it correct, and this is Tom Novolis, your host. Now, as always, we have a lot to cover today, and I'm sure a lot of you are raising your eyebrows in relationship to the title for this week's program that you may have seen in your newsletter. And if you have not signed up for the newsletter, please do so at samueladamsreturns.net when you go there. So what is the title for the program? Well, my goodness, it's a long one, and we have a lot to cover. So with that, the title is Colonial Christmas, car repossessions, J6 referral, and transhumanism. Now, I know you're sitting there wondering, what in the world are you talking about, Tom, with, you know, Colonial Christmas and car repossessions, J6, the referral on Trump criminal charges, and transhumanism, all of that How in the world do you tie all that together? Well, it's very simple. It all comes down to uh, political theology. Every aspect of what I'm talking about here is political theology, and it is tied into economics as well. So what's going on with all of that? And, And Christian economics, and what does that mean? How do you even, you know, look at justifying that in any manner whatsoever? Well, let me put it to you this way. It's it's very, very simplistic. We have to start with uh, taking and looking at what is going on in Christmas First. Hey, let's, honest, here we are. We're in Christmas, ladies and gentlemen, and we have to figure out, Uh, what we're doing with Christmas, and Christmas is very simple. The colonial Christmas was no different than the disparities in our Christmas right now. Shock of all shocks. What in the world are you referring to, Tom, that's ridiculous? No, it's not. It's absolutely sound in thought, in process, And all of that is the fact that Christmas was a a very debauched period of time, even in the colonial area. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Christmas isn't debauchery now. Well, it all depends. You have to take a look at uh, where are we in our society and culture. So I thought the fun part is to give you just a high level key points review, couple things that you know I'm sure a lot of you already know about, but there were things that I talked with Kath about, and she goes, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Or if you did know it, you forgot the significance of it, or you forgot the greater depth of meaning when it comes to what happened during that traditional colonial period. So the big challenge was once again, all of where did people come from? Where did they settle? Who were those that legally immigrated into the new world? Now, what we had once again, the early days we go through and we look at what happened in Virginia and the settlements in Virginia. But then we take a look at who settled in Plymouth in Massachusetts in that whole northern region. And as I've talked about in former programs, the northern area, the Massachusetts colonies, had charters for self-rule. Now, what was Interesting to me, as I went through this and looked at, and it's in your references, about uh, five different locations to go and look at about the uh, traditional history of the New World, if you will. And in the southern areas, you had mostly Anglicans. You had those in the New York, Mid-States. Pennsylvania had the Quakers. You had— Then also New York had Germanic people that moved in. There were Catholics that came. You had others that came from the various Christian traditions. A whole mix. And they all celebrated differently based on their theological perspectives. Now, the ones that were the most, um, how, how would we say, reviewed, The customs of the time were definitely the Puritans. And to the extent that at one point in time, they actually passed laws after the Civil War in England, and they passed laws that said Christmas was outlawed. Christmas was something that you just stayed at home. And you have to remember, when the Puritans first came, Christmas to them was just another workday. They didn't believe in it. They believed that it was that mix of the uh, what the Roman culture, the Roman paganism, all tied together with Germanic paganism. And so, when you see what was going on during that period up there in New England, it was like, no, you're not going to celebrate that. If you think you are, then stay at home behind closed doors. And, oh, wait a minute, is that, what did they call that during COVID? Stay at home behind closed doors. No, yeah, kind of the same thing, but it was the idea that trying to keep the religious holidays pure and understanding what it meant and celebrating it as the birth of Christ, as well as no for, anything more formal than what would happen in churches. So much more. I, I think it's fun reading uh, to go through all of what is there. But I, what I wanted to take you through is out the New England Historical Society really gets into the depth of it. A lot of uh, ideas that the Puritans, although they had Christian nationalism happening there, the way the laws were, the structure, the influences, there were a lot of other folks that came to the colonies and these were the artisans some of the farmers and although some of them had that puritan background others had either the catholic or they had anglican or they had a number of the different uh, theological perspectives of christianity but those that weren't the puritans were known for their debauchery they were known for taking and Doing different things like wassailing and mumming. Whoa, wait a minute, Tom. What's wassailing and mumming? What is that all about? Well, those are some of the ideas and some of the, the what would happen in celebration that the Puritans called paganism. They they looked at it. And what they said here is that they watched the mayhem of those that would break into people's homes. That was the Wasseling, folks. Now, I do have a link at the site to a really good presentation of the song, Here We Come, A wasseling. I think that it's a cute song. Well done by the uh, Celtic women. But the fact of the matter is, is that they would take and break into people's homes, sing a song, do various different things. So this was the the wassailing inside the house, even put on mumming or acts and plays, and then try and force people to pay for that. So they even elected at a number of uh, towns in England and then elsewhere in the colonies, what they would call as a, a Lord of Misrule. And that Lord of Misrule was the one that led all of these different ceremonies and celebrations all the way to the Twelfth Night Feast talk about the 12 nights of Christmas here in a moment, but I wanted to take and bring you into this whole thing on the wassailing, and I'm quoting here, involved barging into houses of the wealthier citizens, singing a song or two, or putting on a short skit, and demanding food, drink, and money. They demanded it and it end up sometimes in fights and, you know, destruction of property and all of these different things that were happening there, all the, that, that just caused all the various problems. Now, I want to take you through that in the bad mirth of all of this is very interesting is that when you really get down into uh, the mumming Mumming. What is mumming? Well, mumming, quite frankly, in the simple definition of mumming, because there's still a mummer's parade, I think it's in Philadelphia right around, what, the uh, uh, New Year's or somewhere in that time, is an actor in a traditional mask, a mime, especially a type associated with Christmas and popular in England. And then uh, through the 18th in 19th centuries, that was the 1700s in particular. now shock of all shocks is that men would dress up like women and women would dress up like men, or they would disguise themselves in such a way that they would slip into people's homes. Sound like bathrooms into people's homes without even raising an eyebrow. It was so commonplace. It was a debauchery that the Puritans stood up against. Well, the Anglicans didn't. The Catholics for sure didn't. A lot of the others did not. And so all this drunkenness, this rabble-rousing, this taking and mumming and dressing up like that and carrying on, well, You go into the 1800s, and oh well, there it is. Because, as I've talked about before, the theological changes within the late 1700s and the 1800s and how Puritanism dropped off, by the early 1800s, Episcopalians and Catholics celebrating Christmas, the holdout Protestants got pushed into it. Uh, they considered Christmas still a pagan holiday, and uh, it was co-opted. But, but when the poem "Twas the Night Before Christmas" was published in 1822, and then Charles Dickens' classic "A Christmas Carol" in 1843, the opposition in the Protestant churches began to dwindle, and relent very interesting how did that justify where they were within their moral beings now in this article here with the new england historical society it says after the civil war the battle ended new england joined the rest of the country in embracing christmas and christmas embraced new england's values at least at some degree And the -the over-the-top debauchery and drunkenness and rabble-rousing out in the streets gave way to the quieter, conventional celebrations as we recognize them today. So let's finish off with the 12 days of Christmas because everybody knows the song. But a lot of people don't know or maybe just don't remember The 12 days of Christmas were from the birth of Christ on Christmas Day to the Epiphany, the Feast of the Epiphany or the revelation publicly of Jesus in the temple and being acknowledged there at that time. So that normally goes through, what, December 25th until January 5th or 6th, depending on your traditional perspective. Well, it's very interesting on what that all means. Very interesting on how all of these various celebrations came about. Now, I just want you to have some of that fun little components of Christmas on the colonial perspective. But now we're going to get into the real hard meat of the matter when we come back in the next two segments to talk about car Repossessions, J6 referrals, and yes, the religion of transhumanism in the whole perspective on how it is affecting our present. No different than the debauchery of the time. So I'm wondering are those out there that will be like Sam Adams and he's returning with Christian nationalism? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second segment of Samuel Adams Returns. Those Anti-Federalists did get it right as I growl on what is happening in our world around us. But it's no different in so many ways as to what happens in humanity because of our sinful natures. And the fact that we do need a saved people— a saved nation. And what I mean by saved, not by some government entity, but by the living God of the biblical reformation, whole, just the essence of the truth of the Godhead in his whole being as defined in the whole Bible. So what does that have to do with um, repossessing cars? repossessing cars, comes into the fact that we fell into, again, a globalist sin and lockdowns and wasting money and all of the ideas of massive debt and bailouts and just on and on it goes. I, I was really taken aback on a particular article that I just popped into my email, and it's called The Perfect storm arise, massive wave, and not the snowstorm that is hitting most of the Midwest, the upper Atlantic, and all of that uh, for this year's Christmas time. No, this is a perfect storm arrives, massive wave of car repossessions and loan defaults to trigger auto market disaster crippling US economy. This article came out December 17th, you know, just a few days ago. And this whole idea, this perfect storm is that this is a key economic indicator that a lot of people don't pay attention to. You know, people look at GDP, they look at housing starts, they look at, you know, where is manufacturing, a number of that, what are the unemployment numbers? a lot of various indicators on what's happening in the economy. Well, what's happening in supply and demand, as we have been learning from Thomas Sowell, what is the scarcity of something in relationship to the desire to have it or want it, or better yet, the need for it. Well, the, um, and this, there's a number of different articles on economics. This is the uh, NXT mine uh, is where this is at. Uh, it is also at Yahoo News. The links are there in the references at uh, the website, net. So make sure you go there to find it. And in some respects, uh, the... the Uh, numbers aren't as bad as, oh, say, 2019 or something like that. So the Yahoo portion of this talks about uh, 2019 being an interesting time. But, But what we've seen is because of COVID and the supply chain debacle, we're seeing that people on average monthly payments for new cars is up 26% from 2019. And what that means is that what you were paying, say $718, now you're paying $1,000 a month for a new vehicle. That's insane. And in addition to that, it is all of the other expensive, cup, expenses, fuel, gasoline, repairs, labor costs, all of that has gone up. So they're calling it a perfect storm is because over the last two years, vehicle prices were inflated because there was no new car supply because of the chips, the supply chain. People were still buying like crazy because they had a lot of stay-at-home cash, stay-at-home cash. That's what they were getting for the COVID thing and the overinflated insanity of uh, staying at home and not working. They had inflated credit scores, which is the greatest debacle, is that during that period of time, how in the world did people get inflated credit scores? So it's like a recipe for disaster. I'm quoting here uh, from uh, Jeremy Cross, who's the president of the International Recovery Systems in Pennsylvania. He's the guy that goes out in Pennsylvania. They take and they repossess cars. So they're looking at all these different numbers and and what's happened, and they're trying to look at and say – oh my gosh, you know, here we have, he's out even repossessing high-end cars instead of people buying cars that would be affordable after the pandemic. No, they took what I would call the windfall of their pandemic money and went out and bought vehicles far above what they would normally be able to afford. So here's some of the interesting aspects between 2008 and 2009 when there was another financial crisis and you saw that auto loans uh, were either 30 days delinquent and that was about a 2.2 percent in the third quarter compared to the 2.35 delinquent over the same period in 2019. And that's from Experian. And then in contrast, uh, just over four percent, percent of the auto loans went into default in 2009 now what we're seeing is that is a large number once again and the other thing you have to understand is that the cost of the vehicles they were seven thousand to fifteen thousand back at that period of time and this was you know where low-income folks consumers were buying these budget vehicles and all of that now the same type of vehicle is twenty to $25,000. That's nuts. That is totally nuts. So you have the near prime and subprime, and you have to understand, you go look it up, I got the reference there for subprime, means people that do not have a, uh, a credit score to be able to get the best rates, so they're paying higher interest as well. So now what you have going on, is that these near prime, subprime group of consumers are getting hit very, very hard by inflation. And what it comes down to is their car, you know, they're thinking about food and houses more than even trying to get to work. What happens when their cars go away? So when I look at this and we're looking at Christmas, we're looking at the economic picture, there were bad times in America during the founding era as well. It wasn't just about car loans. It was about property. Was it going to be able to uh, take and be able to get sufficient foods? What was happening at that time economically during colonial period and worse during the Revolutionary War? The revolution took people into, more than inflation, we had a definitely depressed, recessed, and depressed American economy. Except for those that we know who were in the same business as it is today with none other than the industrial-military complex. They always make money. They always make The money wars help them make money. Now, I'm not comparing any of the modern wars with that of what happened for the American Revolution. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, there's a lot of folks out there that um, definitely do profit. There's a number of articles where you can see that the military industrial complex is really enjoying the Ukrainian debacle. So this one reference here, there's a number of different sites. Uh, again, the article was on December 17th, but there were in July 7th, July 25th, August 29th, October 9th, and November 3rd, talking about how this was being progressively seen that we're at a bubble, a time of bursting once again in the whole matter of banking and all of those car dealerships that carry the paper, carry the loans, or work to bring those loans together. I, I, they're talking now about going from the 72 month loan to an 80 month loan just to try and bring the monthly payments down for people. That's crazy. But the repo man is out there. He's he's knocking it out of the park. They're actually saying in this particular article is that they do not have enough people to go repossess the cars that need to be repossessed. And this is going to carry on through the first quarter, if not further, into 2023. So I'm just... You know, hey, if you need a job, go be a repo man. I don't I should look up that movie. Hmm. That'd be interesting. You should look up that movie, Repo Man. Kind of a crazy movie, I think. I think I saw it a long time ago. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is continuing to happen, is going to happen uh, all the way through into 2023. And it's. You know, should be blowing your mind that here we have a major economic indicator that people are losing their vehicles because of inflation, actually the recession that's going on. This actually takes in, in any other form would take and look at this is what is a driver into that recession. So, as we take and we look at how do you summarize this and what do you want to do about it? Well, I think you need to uh, start pursuing your legislators and talking to them. I mean, really giving them a what for about what in the world they're doing. Look at right now, <laughs> Merry Christmas, the Senate and the House, the Democrats in particular, and a whole bunch of Republicans are trying to take and pass an omnibus bill that has, what, $600 million worth of junk in it, and it's all laid on the taxpayer. There's nothing that happened in the O'Biden Biden inflation bill that deals with inflation. In fact, it's causing more inflation. So your legislators are out there doing crazy things, and they don't give a rip about you. Okay, now this has really become interesting. So just to finish it off with another report, and this report is out of Cars, uh, car scoops. And talking about that, I thought that that's, this was an industry rag that uh, deals with a lot of different aspects of what's going on with vehicles. But uh, here's another repo guy saying that he's, uh, or a dealership that's bought Bentleys, McLarens, Austin Martins, because they were repossessed, because they were, used, they were purchased with that PPP money. And that's how they got it. Now, they're taking in those loans are starting to crumble around everybody's ears. And uh, it's a bubble. He said there was a housing bubble in 2008. Now what we have is an auto bubble. And it's ready to burst, ready to burst. And, uh, folks, it's just, you know, really interesting that – you're looking at, I'm sorry, it's 84-month car loans instead of 72, trying to keep the price down. Or actually, what they want to do is they want to keep the prices of the vehicles higher so that it does not crash. The car markets do not crash. So if they offer a more affordable loan package, ha ha ha, you're paying higher interest, they can keep the prices of the vehicles up. Well, this is economics, folks. This is uh, part of the great problems that are out there when socialism and uh, all of the globalism take effect. Your best bet right now is to do everything you can to preserve what you have. And I pray and I hope that you do have a means of income to retain what you have. And uh, with that, I know that Sam Adams fought against debauchery and bad economic policy. So come on back in the last segment when we look at J6 and transhumans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this last segment of Samuel Adams Returns, those Anti-Federalists. They did. They truly got it correct. And this is Tom Novolis, your host, and I'm glad you're sticking with me for this segment as I just briefly talk a little bit about uh, what has come out of the debacle called the January 6th Committee. And... I just want to take it to someone that I do have a lot of respect for uh, because he is someone that um, has made his life an attempt, a strong attempt to be straightforward on constitutionalism. Now, that being none other than a Harvard professor is Alan Dershowitz. Ellen Dershowitz uh, has in and I'm referring you to justthenews.com to watch the video there it's in the links at samueladamsreturns.net right over my shoulder for those that are watching it on the video you can see there's the website for those that are listening to it in their different markets samueladamsreturns.net and you can sign up for the newsletter there and uh, you know, for those that uh, would want to support the activities here, you know, there's a link for you to participate um, in doing so. But Dershowitz comes back with very brief and very succinct comments that I think are um, profound and very clear is that what the Janus- January 6th committee did in their final findings and in-, in the whole thing? He infers this, I'm not putting words, but in as far as taking in, uh, coming out with criminal referrals, it's unconstitutional. They can't do that. And you may be asking, because you haven't looked at what Dershowitz had to say about it or anything in that regard to anybody else, is that it's unconstitutional, as Dershowitz goes on to say is that uh, Article 1 limits the power of Congress through legislative actions. This is not a legislative action. Naming a specific individual and referring them to the Justice Department, it's not legislative and it tramples on the authority of the executive branch. He goes on to talk about the 14th Amendment, provides one specific time when Congress may in fact act against an individual, but that is if the person was engaged in an insurrection or rebellion like the Civil War, and the people that were there were not causing an insurrection on January 6th, although the Democrats and the leftists in Congress are trying to say it was an insurrection. In fact, it was not an insurrection. Insurrection would need to be much larger, and there's a whole other definition to all of that. So Dershowitz concludes that he thinks, or maybe he's just hoping, because the Justice Department, as we well know, is so politicized that. I don't know what they're going to do, but Dershowitz thinks that the Justice Department will be polite and accept their criminal referrals and then go on with its own investigation. Uh, They have a special counsel in place, and so they do have an ability to investigate, but there's a much higher standard of prosecution than anything that Congress can do. So hopefully, Dershowitz, I'm saying from Dershowitz' quote here, so they will politely ignore what Congress has said. I don't know that. I, I don't trust them at all in that regard because, again, they are so politicized. In fact, the new special persecutor that's there is, in fact, a leftist Trump hater, a leftist American hater, a leftist Constitutional hater. He's just a hater of anybody that doesn't fall into their ideological perspective. So, um, Dershowitz concludes with this: He says we're seeing the law weaponized, and once the Republicans get into power, they'll probably do some of the same thing. Which, you know, I, Dershowitz, you know, hey look at i 'm going to point the finger if you do it, then i'll point the other finger in the other hand, and you i'll do it no you're doing it i'll do it. you know, playing that nonsense. We the people need to take and look at this as some are saying truthfully in Congress right now is that pull the funding on the FBI, pull the funding on a lot of these other entities, and just think about it an omnibus bill. There's a few millions of dollars to build a new FBI building and fund all sorts of wacky FBI stuff, Um, let alone everything that's going on with the Twitter files. So I think that's going to be interesting on that whole outcome. But when you have government taking and pressing in and being involved, even at the cultural level, you got problems, major problems. That was some of the major problems that the founders were looking at as well. Hey, let's just think about it, you know, they were afraid especially in the Massachusetts colonies that they were going to send Anglican bishops to be the overlords of those churches in the colony including every denomination. They were going to set up the taxing structure and do all of what they were looking to do as they were doing in England proper. Well, that was intolerable to all of the different colonies and all of those of the different religious persuasions. Now, when I look at just two quick things here, because we're past our time and how much time we actually have left, uh, I have links for you to understand what Dershowitz talks about, in bills of attainer. So that's you know special acts of the legislature uh, as inflict capital punishments upon per- persons supposed to be guilty of high offenses, such as treason and felony, uh, without any conviction in the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. They can't do that. And so that's what the whole uh, against... Article 1, Section 9, Clause 3 is no bill of attainer or ex post facto law shall be passed. So therefore, Congress and what they're doing with this subcommittee that is has no authority in the first place because they're not following their own letters of uh, institution, uh, they can't do what they're doing. Then secondly, in there, so that's Bill of Attainer. That's that's right out of the Cornell Law Legal Information Institute. And then there's a whole uh, area here on ex post facto law that uh, I want you to go through when you get the opportunity. And it explains it very, very clearly, uh, goes through a historical background of it. And knowing that it's an after the fact, that's what ex post facto means, after the fact, uh, you can't make those laws, you can't set up a criminal liability on something that has happened. So uh, very good uh, definitions, very good uh, explanations to take the time for you to do that. Uh, if you so choose to, and again, you can find the links at SamuelAdamsReturns.net for this week's program. Lastly, um, I was reading along, and I popped into uh, one of the um, yeah, just one of the many articles that I, I like to read, uh, f- and the um, one that really got my attention was out of uh, Leo Homan. Leo Holman does some really great investigative reporting. I think he does a a lot. And in these last five minutes, I just want to make you aware, if you're not already aware, is that the uh, transhumanism is really taking root, like, nobody's tomorrow. Now, I have to say that one of the primary transhumanists that are out there is a gentleman by the name of Ray Kurzweil. I was uh, introduced to Ray Kurzweil's writing uh, over a decade ago, almost 15 years ago. And that was uh, through one gentleman that uh, was a good friend of mine. He's passed now, but a very good friend of mine who was actually one of the inventors of the transistor. So this guy, he had many, many patents to his name and so on and so forth, but not to belabor that. But Kurzweil was very early on in taking and figuring out how do you move and interconnect. Actually, he wants to take and move the whole essence of a person into the bits Domain into the computerized domain actually comes down to the matrix, very simply. And uh, Kurzweil has taken, and he's even part of the Transhumanist Party, they even have a political party. So, core ideas of the Transhumanist Party support significant life extension achieved through the process of science and technology. They support a cultural, societal, and political atmosphere informed and animated by reason, science, and secular values. Bing, 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 bing. There's your alarm bells that should have gone off. So right there, you have to take and look at who are a lot of the different players in this, who are the different names, who are the internationalists involved. Uh, Again, you have the links there at samueladamsreturns.net, but Let's get back here for a moment before I mention about uh, Musk. So there is a gentleman by the name of Yuval Noah Harari who is writing kids' books now to try and get to your 10 to 14-year-olds. That's the target. All right? Here's the target. That's the target. He's trying to go after, uh, and this link there at uh, Leo's website, takes and brings it to you very, very clearly. And they're targeting that age category because that's where they think that they can have the most, or he can have the most influence on this whole idea of transhumanism. Now, he there's a, a video clip in there that's very, very interesting <clears throat> on how he looks at God. And as all humanists do, and secularists they look at God as being selves. They, he talks about some uh, entity out there that cannot be known. <clears throat> Let me tell you straight up, right now, and especially for those that call themselves Christians, the fact is, is that the living God can be known, And if you're not, you you need to understand that this guy is a liar, he's a deceiver. The living God can be known. He's revealed not only in the Old Testament, in the prophecies that point to Jesus. And that's what Christmas is all about, right? Is Jesus is the living God that we can know, and not only that, he is the substitute death and that means our spiritual death, our physical death is one, but the spiritual death is something that he has taken on for us. So with that, you need to look at that the transhumanists are targeting completely your children and grandchildren. So the book is targeted at, once again, 10 to 14-year-olds, and we're down to that last little bit over a minute. So, what I wanted to talk to you about is that in a uh periodic or in a, a, a link called illogically who which is another transhumanist site, is that Kurzweil and Elon Musk are self proclaimed transhumanist, and the fact that Musk is looking at the idea that the human race is going to destroy itself that he thinks we need to be cyborgs. So that's why he invested and started up a company that is taking and developing a chipset to take and allow us to become cyborgs. So what does that mean? We're all going to go to what was all those uh, Star Wars or Star something, Star Trek videos into the future? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have time to take you through the rest of this, but the links are there at Adamsreturns.net. Sam Adams knew the human condition. That's why he was an anti-federalist. That's why he pushed that there needed to be amendments to the Constitution. And we have to know and live into our rights that are given to us by God. Come on back next week when Sam Adams returns and those anti-federalists, they did. They got it right.